Welcome back to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Just like always, you're with Ian. And with Mike. And just like always, we are rereading the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, we're partway through now the 13-gun salute. Would you mind catching us up on where we got to last week and looking ahead to what's coming this week? Oh, I'd be delighted, Ian. So last week we got through the first half of Chapter 6 and had an excellent conversation with Josh from Adventures in History Land. So just a reminder before we finish off Chapter 6 here, so in the first part of that chapter, the Diane resupplied, Fox introduced Jack and Stephen to Governor Raffles. Mm-hmm. There were rumors of English bank failures. We had, as as O'Brien and, and others in the party called them, three old buggers joined the mission delegation. And Stephen used Raffles' recommended money exchange merchant to deposit his gold and then later, um, when the Diane arrived in Pulo Prabang, met this merchant's correspondent, Lin, who Stephen's going to try to use Lin and his colleague, Wu Han. Uh, Wu Han has a connection to the French missions, Pondicherry Clark. And so he's going to try to use them not only to disperse his funds discreetly over there, but to gather some intelligence on the French mission here. So mm. that was the last time, along with, as I said, that great conversation with Josh. Um, and, and I took some time to check out Josh's YouTube channel, Adventures in History Land. And one of the first faces that popped up was one that we hope to be have a future guest on our show. So uh, yeah. if you haven't been out there, by all means do. There's some really nice folks out there, some great conversations. And we're trying to roll those numbers up above the thousand level here. So added mind to that one. So this time, as we finish chapter six, discretion is the word. We keep coming back to discretion over and over again as Stephen moves onto the island and continues to work with Lynn and Van Buren. Now, everybody in the mission is preparing for uh, to meet the Sultan and to start negotiations here. We're going to come across all kinds of things in the remainder of this chapter, L- vital life forces, many kinds of spleens. We'll talk about orangutans and durians and babarusa and Ganymede. There are going to be a couple of returning villains, and we will hear about Dr. Matron's guide to better out-of-town business trip accommodations for all of you who travel on business for a living. (laughs) Just the advice that the traveling gentleman needs, Mike. I can't wait. I can't wait. (laughs) So, Mike, we start out the chapter on the streets of Pulu Prabang, and Stephen is walking back to Van Buren's. Now, before we get into this, I just want to thank a listener, Don Vesterheiden. Don is from his name and from the information he shares is clearly Dutch and of Dutch origin because he's been looking for the origins, the possible origins of Cornelis van Buren. And he did some digging in kind of biographical sources. The Dutch version of Wikipedia didn't give any clues. There's an online population archive. Great work, Don, for digging into the online population archive. There were 49 van Burens born between 1776 and 1777. Two were baptized in Rotterdam. That would make them about 36-ish years of age. A bit young, but <laughs> maybe not Maybe not our man. The next older Cornelis van Buren was born in 1732, making him over 80, so therefore probably not our guy either. So, Don's conclusion, it was not a historical person. 
at the time of the 30th salute. Thank you, Don. Even more thank you for another possible connection, a possible semi-real link. The Dutch royal family used to regularly use the surname Van Buren when traveling incognito. And in particular, the current king of the Netherlands took part in a skating marathon in 1986 under the name Van Buren, which was around the time that the 13-gun salute was being written. So who knows, maybe O'Brien saw a reference to Van Buren, the incognito name for the king of the Netherlands. And that's where our Cornelius found his name from. Who knows? It's a fascinating story. Thank you, Don. Great to hear from you. Love having these listeners around the world and love you know, the great tradition of Patrick O'Brien, where we're all doing the research to try to keep up with him. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyhow, Stephen's got some specimens that he's gathered that he had not even seen in Raffles or Van Buren's own collections. He's got some Beatles for Sir Joseph, some of which he says he could not even assign to a family. I mean, he can't make them fit in the pattern of systematic biology, you know, orders and kingdoms that he's got in his head right now. And at Van Buren's, both Mr. Van Buren and his wife helped Stephen to preserve everything before he and Van Buren headed off to dissect a portly tapir and examine its spleen. And Mike, it makes us wonder for a minute if there's a link here to the legendary Mo that we mentioned last time in connection right. with hmm, spleens. Anyhow, Van Buren also had shown Stephen his garden gates that he should use when visiting at night so that Stephen doesn't alert the watchman and thereby they can both save some time for their dissections. Bodies in this tropical climate decompose so rapidly. And Van Buren gets talking with Stephen about spleens and what Stephen calls the erroneous notion of force hypermechanique, force hypermechanic. And Mike, we'll, we'll come to spleens in a minute but a hypermechanical force. I'd never read anything about this before we got to this reference in the book here. Yeah, I've, I've got to tell you, and for me too, that I, you know that particular phrase was a new one. Apparently, you know, it's a phrase quite often used in kind of the French 18th century discussion about vitalism. You know, vitalism being this idea that goes back to Aristotle and probably beyond of. You know, what's the essential difference between things that are living and things that are non-living, right? And, you know, is there some vital force? And, and this, you know, while this is an 18th century French discussion with biologists and physicians, you know, we've got references to spirit and soul and pneuma and, and this whole idea. And, and Stephen's in, in the midst of some of this practice now of health or ill health being an imbalance in vital forces. So, you know, it sounds like and Buren is starting to say, somehow related to this whole spleen thing. So you said, Ian, and we'll come back to this, that there are differences that perhaps are physical and mechanical and biological and chemical. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that process, too. And, we, you know, it just starts to sound like O'Brien is really digging into something here because he keeps coming back to this. Yeah, and I'm sure it's not an accident that he's chosen the spleen as opposed to any other organ. It also reminds me of later in medical theory, the, the, the theory of humorism, the, the Galen's theory of the four humors, because the spleen is the organ that in humorism was the source of black bile. And black bile being the, the humor associated with melancholy. So if you're bilious, then, you have, you, then you're melancholic. And... It's very touching to think of Stephen and Buren debating the source of melancholy as Stephen's on his own. 
wrestling with his his life and his situation out here, contemplating on the spleen of a tapir and other animals as well, and talking about the connection to humans. I know. It sounds very mystical as well. And, and I know that the spleen is an organ in Chinese medicine and that the idea of uh, you know essential force is part of the theory of Chinese medicine as well. I'm sure O'Brien's taking us on a mystical journey of comparative anatomy and oriental philosophy. I think it's very, very exciting. Yeah. So, you know, in, in, in kind of continuing that journey and precisely to your point, and, and, and so we're, we're treading a fine line here, listeners, because we know a little bit of where this is going. And it's like, yeah. OK, so we don't want to get there yet. But now that we've been there, we're thinking back on this. You know, Stephen asked Van Buren if he's ever dissected an orangutan. And Van Buren says only once. And he's about to tell Stephen that there's really very little difference between their spleen and ours. But he stops himself. And he starts talking about how hard it is to get a good human spleen in, in this country, you know, right here in Pula Burbank, yeah. since the only prime corpses he can get are adulterers. And, and Stephen's kind of scratching his head going, well, you know, even if you committed a great deal of adultery, I'm not sure it's going to change your spleen a whole lot. And Van Buren explains that the adulterer, the captured adulterer, if you will, has a bag tied around his head tightly filled with pepper and the aggrieved family and friends beat this bag with sticks and the person dies of prolonged convulsions caused by the flying pepper and that it's these, the flying pepper and the convulsions and all that that distort the spleen and change its juices. So Van Buren then comes back around and says he'll show Stephen a human spleen and an orangutan spleen to see if Stephen can see any difference. So we've got this discussion, as you said, Ian, you know, what's the difference between living and non-living things? Now we're kind of in a nuance about what makes living things different from one another. You know, are orangutans so different from people? Well, how about their spleens? And, you know, it, it made me pause to think, yeah, I can't imagine orangutans peppering each other to death in a group ritual ceremony based on <laughs> perceived infidelity. But I also can't imagine them, you know, kind of saluting uh, from their respective quarter decks after blowing each other's ships and crews to pieces. So I, I, I don't know. I, I just love how O'Brien is always making me think while engrossing me in the story and entertaining and edutaining me. All of yeah. that. Yeah. And it's got this really, for me, it's not even 18th century. It's a very Victorian 19th century mixture of real glossy horror and mysticism and decadence. It's really kind of mm, really rich stuff. And I'm reminded as well of the, uh, was it Vathek, the Gothic novel that we were talking about right at the beginning of of the book here? And by the way, if I'd had a sack tied over my head, beaten with sticks full of pepper. I don't think anybody would look be looking at my dead body going, oh, well, there goes the poor guy's spleen. I, I think I'd have other worries way ahead. <laughs> way ahead of that. Too oh, true. Goodness me. Now, since we've got onto orangutans, Stephen's still in naturalist mode, chatting away here with Van Buren. He says, I'd love to see an orangutan. And here's a lovely bit of foreshadowing of uh, some of what's to come that you and I have been talking about here, Mike. Van Buren says, there are very few close by and that they're killed for eating durians, which introduces a a whole other um, rabbit hole for us to go down here. Stephen says he'd love to see a durian. Van Buren shows him one from his battery. Now, Mike, I've seen a few of these on market stalls in the Far East. Have you ever come across a durian? 
Same same thing in in Singapore and yeah. and you know we we have a friend a mutual friend who who loves these and yeah. you know she she tried to to get me to sample one and now now that I'm reading all this and coming back to it I go I should have tried it but I couldn't get past the smell here yeah, yeah. these are wicked things they are wicked things so Van Buren shows him one from the bat tree in his garden it's about the size of a coconut and it has these really strong thick set ugly spikes and the strength of the orangutan is it can get through all of these defensive spikes to get to the fruit inside now Stephen thinks that the smell that he gets from the opened durian is the smell of decay but he realizes it's the fruit and he says having overcome his reluctance he can't believe how good it is he had always believed smell and taste to be inseparately allied as he says but he's realizing that the terrible terrible smell is no guide at all to the deliciousness of the taste and mike i know of this only by reputation i don't think i've ever smelled a durian i've had durian ice cream in the malaysian airlines departure lounge before but i think that only counted to me being able to say i'd held up a spoonful of something that contained durian because it was so diluted that i never got any kind of smell of it but people say that it's a really really repellent smell right yeah, absolutely. And they're, you know, they're great. I don't know if we can tweet out a couple of YouTube links or anything. They're just great videos of people coming in contact with the durian for the first time <laughs> to see their reactions. And it's amazing at something that people, you know, Stephen's thinking, oh my gosh, that's that rotted dissecting body that I'm smelling. Oh no, it's this fruit. Oh, it tastes delicious. That seems to be not at all an unusual impression. And to go from that to you know, countries that think of this as the king of fruits here, that uh, it's such an incredibly wonderful fruit that I'm going to kill orangutans because they're stealing my durians. Mm. We're, we're back into this whole discussion about it. So, you know, the smell has been variously described as rotten onions, turpentine, raw sewage. In a lot of these countries, even the countries that love them, it's illegal to take them into hotels. It's illegal to have them on public transportation. Yeah. But Alfred Russell Wallace, who's a naturalist of the time period that we're in, who a lot of people think that maybe a lot of what Stephen's doing here is based on the time that Alfred Russell Wallace was in Java at, at oh, about this time yeah. or a little later. Yeah. He described them as a rich custard, highly flavored with almonds. So, you know, raw sewage to that. Really fascinating here. It is also a great video of elephants being introduced to him to the first time. <laughs> so, you know, so clearly I went down the durian rabbit hole here, as you said. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating one. And when we come back up from the durian rabbit hole, we've got a whole other rabbit hole, which is the orangutan rabbit hole to go down here. Because Van Buren goes on telling Stephen about just how gentle and charming and deliberate orangutans are. They're different, he says, in character from other apes and monkeys. And here's the thing. Stephen would have to go, he says, to Kumai, to the Buddhist monastery on the top of the island, to see an orangutan. And Van Buren's never been there because of all the steps that are required to reach it. It's very high up. Stephen says he can't go until after the negotiations are concluded and tells Van Buren who has learned to hate Bonaparte for what's been done to Holland and what Bonaparte was planning to do to Pulau Prabang about the new connection that he had made that morning. And Van Buren says, switching very neatly from naturalist into assistant spymaster mode here, tells Stephen about the Sultan's council members in terms of their virtues, shortcomings, tastes and approachability. And I'm pretty sure from taste 
Mike, we're meant to see that as a signifier that the, the sexual orientation of the members of the Sultan's Council. Right. Um, right. Stephen is about to leave to head back to the area of his lodgings, which are described as uh, the bawdy houses and places where people dance. Van Buren asks him to come back at two in the morning when it's cool to finish the last of the dissection of this tape here before the body decomposes. And holding out one last little spy tidbit here, he tells Stephen that one of his servant's half-brothers works in the French mission house and may be able to gather some information about this man from Pondicherry that Stephen's got an interest in. So, you know, you just mentioned... Ian, that Stephen's about to head back, you know, towards the body houses and places where they dance. And in fact, O'Brien tells us that Stephen is staying at the area's favorite body house, one complete with dancing girls, a famous Javanese orchestra, and a gamelan with rhythms, intervals, and cadences that are unlike any that Stephen's ever heard. Now, this was not new to you in the gamelan, but it was completely new to me. And so I was off on another 20-minute rabbit hole here. <laughs> yeah, it, gamelan, it's a lovely... Well, it's it, it's not an instrument. It's not really a genre. It's, it's, it's a style of playing. And it's a particular set of instruments that are used for this style of playing associated with court and celebratory music um, in the Malay and the Indonesian culture. Um, it's... It's learned a lot as an ethnomusicology kind of interest by people studying music on a uh, on a college program. And Maurice Ravel, the composer, a composer that I have a big admiration for, Maurice Ravel traveled to the Far East. And lots of the complex, sort of odd-sounding harmonies in Ravel's work are said to be inspired by the overlapping, clashing harmonies that you get in Gamelan. And it's one of those things that, if you're in the right mood, listening to Gamelan can be super restful and evocative but if you're not in the right mood and it's a, the gamelan falls a particular way, then it can really make your head hurt as well. But it, it was fascinating to me in some of this research that before Buddhism ever hit the area, before Hinduism ever hit the area, that this was music was developed as a way to summon the gods. And yeah. again, so we're back to that, as you say, a little of this mysticism and a little of the, you know, just fascinating here. So... When he's not listening to this orchestra, though, we find out that Stephen every night sleeps with a scented young woman who's so used to her client's particularities that she's neither surprised nor displeased with Stephen's passivity. And and I couldn't, you know, I just really kind of like running into a wall when I read this line here. You know, does it does it strike anybody else as strange behavior for Stephen? Not not the music, not the fact that, in fact, the other thing he does is he spends a lot of late nights at high stakes gambling in the same place, but that he's sleeping with a girl in his room. And I'm thinking Diana, Laura Fielding, almost falling to my death in Sweden. You know, I don't know. What do you what do you think? And I mean, you know, is this I don't want to look like an intelligence agent or is this, as James Bond would say, oh, this is what I have to do because I am an intelligence agent. I don't know. Yeah. Or is he just c cultivating the idea of somebody who's totally distracted by the sights and sounds and experiences of the town? Or maybe, Mike, since we've had a couple of pointed references to the sexual orientation of the Sultan's court and to the French party, maybe this is also Stephen's way of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm the member of the entourage that's not gay. All right. <laughs> Which doesn't quite sit right with me, but maybe he's doing that for the sake of his reputation amongst the local people. I don't know. 
Not, not that it seems to be a very homophobic environment anyway, but... Right. I'm, uh, I'm not sure at all. It, it reminded me of, of Wags in, in one of the final episodes in, in last season of, of Billions. So he was, he was using a body house in a similar way, but he was actually trying to get home to spend more time with his significant others, but had to, be, had to keep up his reputation. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Oh, well, who hasn't had that problem? Yeah. <laughs> when Stephen in his boarding house here meets his shipmates from the Diane in the main hall this is a tricky moment for them because I, I think just as Stephen he has no reason to suppose that anybody should infer anything about his behavior and he attaches no significance or meaning to it at all but st- staying ashore in the in the bed of a woman is something that's very 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 important to most members of the crew of the Diane and they're all either embarrassed on his behalf or shocked to see him or they assume that he's completely naive and he doesn't know what kind of place he stumbled into and it's it's funny really Stephen as we know also takes part in that high stakes gambling that's going on there but despite putting himself in this kind of milieu here in Pulau Prabang, he hasn't yet bumped into Ledward or Ray. We know that they are, in fact, away hunting with the Sultan. And Ledward, we discover, had known the Sultan's hunting partner. He does, however, Stephen does, meet four Spanish shipwrights in the French service. And th- this connection is going to turn out to be important in a few paragraphs, so let's just hang on to it. He leads these shipwrights to believe that he, Stephen, is a Spaniard in the English service, and it turns out that they themselves had been pressed. He sits down with them at cards, takes their money because they're easy marks. He gleans a lot of information from them and then allows them to win some of the money back when he realizes that they don't really support the French. So they're still an easy mark, but his conscience kind of bothers him a little bit. And he also spends time walking around the ship and the town uh, in the character of a natural philosopher sometimes with other people from the ship, usually by himself. And, and Mike, this is reminding me of my mental image of Stephen walking around Bombay. He's got all these natural impediments, all these things that want to jump out and sting or bite or kill or annoy him. There are flies, there are mosquitoes, there are aggressive bees, there are red ants. There's even an irritable female python hatching eggs that Stephen stumbles into. And Jack finds Stephen in a little glen that he often uses to observe all these different creatures, hornbills, mouse deer a tiny baby deer and gibbons and jack says he would have taken a pony if he'd known that it was going to be this far before he found stephen and wonders how stephen gets the energy after his nudge nudge nightly activities i love this summary of jack's point of view here in the text like the rest of the ship's company jack had heard of the doctor's extraordinarily dissolute life smoking and drinking until all hours gambling But he alone, that's Jack, he alone knew that Stephen could take the sacrament without confession. Wow. There's there's a friend and and a friend's knowledge. Wow. (laughs) And maybe that will help just in case any dispatchers are finding their way home towards Diana right now. At least he's not parading this woman up and down the streets. (laughs) No, she hasn't got red hair. That's right. Exactly right. Well, Stephen is is thinking about spending the night finishing his dissection with Ben Buren. But in, in the meantime, he's chatting away with Jack here. And, and he attributes, you know, Jack's sort of gasping, uh, uh, you know, and having ha- had such a tough time sort of climbing up to find Stephen to his weight. And he has one of these lines that he comes out with every once in a while. He says, you fellas of, a, of an obese and sanguine habit 
are always on the verge of an apoplexy, particularly in this climate. Will you not omit suppers at least? Suppers have killed more than Avicenna ever cured. So, Ian, thank you. That Avicenna Persian philosopher, astronomer, physician, full-time polymath, wrote the Book of Healing and the Canon of Medicine, uh, which became a university text for 600 years, along with some 450 other works. So widely published. And we actually heard a similar reference to him in the Mauritius Command, where, you know, Stephen said the dinners had killed more men than he had ever healed. So, you know, a a, a nice repeat, uh, a little tiny echo from Patrick O'Brien here. Yeah, very good. This this is the book for all the echoes of the old old stories, isn't it? Great. Right. Well, anyway, here Jack is. He's chased Stephen, what sounds like, through the jungle. He's finally caught up with him and says, despite getting all of this shade from Stephen about his weight and his diet and stuff. He says, the reason I've come here is to tell you that Fox has a conference that evening to prepare for the audience with the Sultan the day after tomorrow. So Mike, we're just 48 hours away from the coming together. That's really been the target of most of these initial few chapters of the book. So this is a big moment here. Right. On their way back down. Jack tells Stephen about all the stores that they've loaded at Anger, how they had restowed the Diane's hold, and he pricked on a little bit about their stowing of the hold. And a meeting that he had held with the crew after talking with Fox. He told the crew about the treaty, that they were there to negotiate against the French, how the French sailors had gone ashore and gotten drunk, fought, they'd kissed honest young women. I love how there's the distinction between honest women and other kinds of women. Um, and touched their bare breasts and I don't think Jack can say that that thought's never crossed his mind either from some of his point of view that we've had in previous books, but never mind. Um, All of this he's calling out as disgraceful behavior that had led to the friendship being banned to the Malaria Creek. The Dianes, Jack is telling the crew, would only go ashore in small groups on a promise of good behavior with just a very little amount of their pay advanced in order to help their country. And this is Jack really saying, for God's sake, behave yourselves when you go ashore here. And he had even thought of ending with a rousing God save the king or three cheers. But the crew, he says, was now so sullen and dogged that he abandoned that idea. Even Killick and Bonden only say yes, sir, and no, sir, to him by now. And he, he kind of regrets the hold that he had over his old surprise crew. He says, the surprises might have worn it without oratory because they know me. But not these swabs. They want to be ashore, tumbling a wench, and be damned to their country's good. Mm. Poor mm. Jack, Mike. He's reached the end of his authority here. Well, and, you know, I almost think you know, we're speaking about vital forces that, you know, when, when he had the letter of Mark, he was thinking that his vital force was to be in the Navy. Now that he's in the Navy, he's thinking, well, you know, maybe it was the letter of Mark yeah. <laughs> and that surprise crew. Who knows? Well, you know, Stephen points out to Jack that these men are only following one of nature's strongest instincts and suggests to Jack that maybe the answer is to take the youngest crew members, the real youngsters, and send them ashore for Fox to look after. And then he says, yeah, I know you don't like it. You don't usually like to do this, but, have, you know, bring the women to the ship. Um, and, and Jack's wondering, oh, my gosh, you know, would Fox look after these kids? And, and, you know, Stephen tells him Fox would sell his soul for this treaty. He'd look after an entire orphanage. And Jack's like, good idea. You know, I'm, I'm going to ask him. So maybe maybe he's got a solution here. 
<laughs> now, at this meeting with Fox, he pours them some East India Ale. I might I had a nice moment of... By the way, India Pale Ale is super popular in drinking cultures around the world now. It was a kind of ale invented to be able to be brewed either in Britain and shipped into hot climes or even brewed in hot climes. So the, the dryness and the hoppiness of it is meant to be specifically so that it, it keeps and is drinkable in hot weather. Fox pours them some East India Ale and asks for any observations from Jack and Stephen that might strengthen his hand if he meets with the council after the sultan's first audience he lays out the stakes for them a little bit here he says the french are offering the subsidy guns ammunition and skilled shipbuilders england he says hopefully offers a larger subsidy some ongoing protection some trade concessions not very important ones and an implicit threat of what might happen after the war is over and fox points out the major negotiation problem he faces which is that if with the help of the french they could take one East Indiaman, it would damage England greatly and give them more profit than Fox can provide in subsidy. So there's hard cash at stake here. And to these people, meaning to the Sultan and his councillors, they're not sure whether the French or English seem to be likely to win the war. This reminds me of reading about the story of the origins of the US Navy and bartering with the Sultan of Tripoli to say, you know, well, What's it going to take for us? Can, can we pay you ransom? Can we pay you tribute? Can we threaten you with, you know, us sacking your town with our new warships? Or are we just going to have to suck it up and accept the cost of you preying on our merchantmen? And there's a pretty hard economic trade-off that these people were making. Hmm. Well, you know, Jack helps him out here. Fox is, is, is looking for some good information. And Jack says, well, let me talk to you about the problems with this French promise to build ships here says the Malay are really good at building small craft, but not men of war, not these ships that are big enough and strong enough to carry and fire heavy cannons. And he said, now, on the other hand, the French shipwrights who know how to build those ships don't know how to work with the wood that's available in the forest here. And he said, think about it. He says, currently, you know, the people here build a pro, one of their ships in, in maybe a week or so. Now, if they're going to build a 74, that's going to take them over a year. And that's a year after the wood of 2,000 trees of two ton apiece has been cut down and fully seasoned. And he says, you know, after all that wood's been seasoned, if they have 47 experienced shipwrights to do the job, that's over a year. He said even a frigate would take 27 skilled hands a year after the wood has been cut down and seasoned. And he said, once the ship is built, the crews will need to be trained to sail it and to shoot the great guns such that the guns are more dangerous to the enemy than to the crew and the ship itself. So he's, he's making some interesting point here. And then Jack sums it up. And I love this. You know, how, how many of us have ever seen something like this? He says, the whole thing seems to me a scheme concocted in an office by a parcel of landsmen, <laughs> if it is to be looked upon as one that will give quick return. So I, I just love that. What? What could be more condemning to a naval yeah. eye? Yeah, an idea that was designed by a committee. Right. Mike, this is fascinating as well. I remember in the conversation with Josh, you know, we know that the teak forests and the ability to service and maintain ships out in the Far East was important to the people who already own the navies, namely the English and the French and the Dutch, and the people who therefore already have skills. Actually, it turns out that the ability to build ships is only of limited value to folks who don't already have the shipbuilding and don't already have 
the ability to kind of maintain and store and keep these ships going. Real, really interesting insight into all of the economic aspects of owning a fleet, not just the kind of individual piece parts of it. And Stephen goes on and tells him, not only that, brother, he says, some of the shipwrights that the French are offering are actually impressed Spaniards. These are the guys that Stephen was schooling at cards the night before. And they're likely to run to the Philippines whenever they've got the chance. Some of the French guns, he goes on, are already honeycombed. Some of the powder got wet on the voyage here. The kegs haven't been properly inverted during the journey. And Stephen suggests that Fox should invite the Sultan to visit the Diane the next day to see a great gun exercise. And, you know, reading between the lines, see that their guns actually work and their powder actually fires. That, he thinks, will offset the advantage that Ledwood might have from having spent some hunting time with the Sultan and might give the Sultan a feel for Britain's real capabilities. And as they're thinking about this and strategizing about what's going to happen at the Sultan's reception, Fox says, well, I want everybody dressed up. I'd like the due splendor from everybody's wardrobe here for the, for the audience and for the occasion. And he wanders allowed what Stephen can wear and very gently drops the hint that, you know, your normal show-going rig of the black coat and the and the stained underclothes and stuff is not really going to cut it for an audience with the Sultan. And Stephen says, well, okay, I've, I've got a plan. Mike, this is the first time Stephen's ever talked about wearing academic dress and how the heck he thinks that he could just conjure it up. But yeah, never mind, we'll go with it. He says, I'm going to wear my scarlet robe and hood that are due to me with my college degree of Doctor of Medicine. So Nice, nice. Go. Stephen, dressed as a Time Lord, is going right. to save the day. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know what, you know, contemplating Stephen, you know, dressed in the, uh, you know, as you say, as a Time Lord or, you know, a cousin of the Scarlet Witch, I, I think, uh, you know, that warrants a break. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I, ever since I heard the Pale India Ale, I thought, wait, could we just take a minute? Yeah, very good. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lover's hole welcome back we hope you enjoyed a glass of pale ale before we get back into the story we want to talk a lot about a little bit of uh, conversation we've been having with one of our listeners and one of our guests about 13 gun salute now this is about the cover art and as i'm sure you know the jeff hunt cover art for the 13 gun salute is a depiction of the episode that we covered a couple of chapters ago when the diane was almost dragged onto the cliffs of inaccessible island and our listener david corns or corness hello david had come to facebook.com forward slash lovers hole and had asked us this i was wondering about the jeff hunt cover illustration says david as the text makes it clear that the incident occurred heading eastwards on the south side of inaccessible island when they are clear, Jack offers to show Stephen the north side of the island. In the illustration, the island is to the starboard of the Diane. I wonder whether the publishers reverse the image in order to place the title plate in the same position as on their other covers. And David, I'm sure you were eagle-eared enough to have remembered that Jeff talked about something like that for The Fortune of War and possibly other books when we interviewed him back around Christmas time. Well, we were really fascinated by this, so we took a chance and sent an email out to Jeff who very kindly got back to us today. Here's what Jeff Hunt says about the cover of the 13-Gun Salute. 
I'm not at all sure, he says, that the Diane was on the south side of the island, nor that the text indicates this. Initially, the ship is described as heading more or less directly for inaccessible island from the west, about to be pinned against the cliffs by a westerly breeze and a westerly current. The text, says Jeff, implies that Jack is looking at the island over the starboard side. And then again later, he tells Fox that Tristan da Cunha is visible forward to the left of the cliff. In other words, presumably past the northern point of inaccessible. And if they were on the south side of the island, this would make no sense. And what's more, he finally tells Maturin that he can now show him the north side of the island, which would scarcely be possible if they're then coasting the south side with a westerly wind, because they'd have to beat to windward to get around there. So there you go. Um, thank you very much to Jeff for the answer. Thank you very much to David for spotting the potential ambiguity here. Thank you to Patrick O'Brien, I guess, for writing some potentially ambiguous and confusing things in the text about exactly where we were and exactly what we were looking at. But I, and I love the fact that when you dig into it, the, the cover art is absolutely thoughtfully trying to represent what we're getting here from the text. If you want to take a look at that piece of cover art, if in fact you'd like to buy some of your own copies of Jeff's excellent artwork, you can find all of his stuff online in a number of places, including artmarine.co.uk. So thanks again. I never want to arm wrestle with somebody that goes back to the original ship's logs yeah, exactly. <laughs> to position this and then looks at where was the sun at this time. And it's a well done, well done both. And, and, and as you said, great question, great answer. Love this. Well, Okay, Ian, so when we last left our heroes, Jack and Stephen are about to get suited and booted to meet the Sultan, right? Yeah, big day. Right. Well, O'Brien tells us that Stephen does, in fact, arrive in scarlet, or, as he says, at least Chinese red, gown and hood, walking next to Jack. And they're, and they're moving quickly because there's a tropical downpour threatening. And Fox is leading the whole mission procession. He's on a state horse with a silver-studded crimson harness, grooms in gold sarongs and turbans. And the barge crew has, O'Brien writes, new white broad-brim Senate hats with ribbons, brass button blue jackets, snowy duck trousers, black shoes with genteel bows, and serviceable cutlasses by their sides. And that these gentlemen are particularly remarked upon. So I, I just love this. I can kind of see this procession going by here. And and O'Brien describes all these multiple courtyards that they have to come through, this long procession through these gateways until they finally get inside the hall. And just as they come inside the hall, before the French, by the way, have started their procession, the first warm, heavy drops splash down. So we're sitting here thinking, oh, this is great. Our guys rushed in in all their incredible splendor and finery, and they're quickly working with Fox's attache and the vizier's secretary to get into the exact precedence along the east wall that kind of leads all the way up to Fox standing a few yards left of the empty throne. And it says they wait there for some time happily listening to the rainfall as they hear the beginning of the French drums and trumpets. So this is this is a great gotcha here. I love this one. It, it is a great gotcha. The rainfall is making them smile because they know the French are processing in and it's about to tip it down with rain. The, the French are coming in. We see at a gliding run, and I can just imagine these kind of functionaries trying to move quickly but appear dignified. 
uh, but it's not working out. All of them are more or less soaked. And Mike, I, I think all of us who are here on Team Stephen, Team Britain, even Team Fox are going, yeah, oh, anti-Team Ledwood and Ray, we're all right, going, exactly. yay for the rain, yay for the rain. Yes. The French come in soaking wet. They spend a bit of time straightening their line. They're all a bit disheveled by the rush. And they've got wet clothes. They've got wet feathers in their hats. They've got wet papers. But as soon as they had settled in their due places, Duplessis on the far side of the throne, looked across the open space and gave Fox what could just be described as a bow. It was returned with an exactly matching degree of cordiality. And Mike, I, I had never got the pun in this sentence until you pointed out to me just how Patrick Tull says it. As soon as they had settled in their duplessis, duplessis on the far side of the throne. So they're really elegantly <laughs> concealed pun there, duplessis and duplessis. Well done, Patrick O'Brien. Well, and sorry, well done, Patrick Tull as well, I think, for right. that one out. But despite the rain falling on the French, and, and by the way, Mike, that's never an accident. I was once listening to somebody talking about the production of a TV show where there was a downpour and they said, anytime it rained on TV, it's for a reason. It's for the story. And I'm very sure that it's raining on the French's parade here, quite literally. Yeah. But the, the rain isn't all that we have to enjoy the spectacle of here. No, no, no. Um, O'Brien writes, and, and I'll quote this because it's so good. At the same moment, Ray caught sight of Stephen's scarlet robe and recognized first his face and then Jack Aubrey's with utter horror. He made a kind of a harsh inward sob and grasped Ledward's arm. Ledward looked in the same direction. He stiffened, but betrayed no emotion. And the appearance of the Sultan at the far end of the hall diverted the attention of all, yet not before Stephen had noticed the expression of cold hatred on Fox's white closed face one that he had rarely seen equaled. So, boy, what an incredible, just a couple of split seconds here, an incredible display of emotions across both sides, you know, Britain oh. and France, and, and, and our, French, you know, our now French-English traders, Ledward and Ray. Yeah. I mean, when we think, how, how many chapters back have we got to reach since we first learned that Ray was a badon, I guess? Is it Ionian Mission or Treason's Harbor? I can't remember. And we've known, and finally Stephen has known as well, that he is at the heart of all of the antagonism and deception and treachery that has hurt Jack and has hurt Stephen in so many books, so many chapters. And Stephen hasn't been able to, since, since I think one card game with Ray a while ago, Stephen hasn't been able to encounter him, hasn't really been able to grasp him and hold him to account. And at long last, this snake, Ray, realizes what's coming to him and i'm all going yeah in your face Absolutely. ray ah. <laughs> so this is this is a really really great moment I, I can visualize the reaction of him kind of you know recoiling in horror and grasping ledward's arm it's a, it's a really great moment meanwhile we've got duplessis and fox have got to do their stuff now we've sowed alarm in the second rank if you like of the french contingent how is Duplessis going to fare and is Fox going to do any better? The Sultan and his party advance into the hall. The French start clapping as the rest of the hall watches, and that seems to be a slightly strange thing. Um, the Sultan bows with equal courtesy on either side. The vizier announces that the two envoys have come, the first from the Emperor of France, the second from the King of England, and the Sultan asks the first comer, naming the French, to speak first. 
and Duplessis reads, and great news, he reads really poorly. He's got damp paper, he's out of sorts, he's reading very badly. Ledward standing behind him is translating. Now, Ledward's translation is fluent enough, but it's in a hard voice, as O'Brien writes in the text, strangely at variance with its compliments and its expressions of goodwill and an earnest desire for an even closer alliance between the cousins of Pulo Prabang and the French Empire. Now, that's just about it for the French. The vizier and the envoys had agreed to limit opening addresses to 15 minutes because there's a feast coming, but the French had finished even ahead of their 15-minute time limit. And now it's the turn of Fox. Fox, who began badly, says the text, stumbling over the Sultan's titles, namely Flower of Courtesy, Nutmeg of Consolation, Rose of Delight. And by the way, Mike, Nutmeg of Consolation, we have to stick a pin in that one. Right, right. Fox scarcely reached 10 minutes in spite of a brilliant recovery and a much admired evocation of the Sultan's illustrious descent. And I think maybe the advantage is going to be that Fox was able to speak in the native language. In in any case, everyone's amazed that the speeches are done in less than 15 minutes. Rarely ever happens in this part of the world. The Sultan smiles, welcomes everyone, blesses them, and says their presence, their gifts, will live on in his treasury and in their hearts. Right. <laughs> wow. So we're not really yet going to get... You know, a resolution here. We haven't got the, the, the final score yet, really, for this comp- this fixture, have we? No, 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 no. And, and we know, you know, from a little bit earlier in this book, we know when we've been in this part of the world before that these negotiations sometimes go on for months, right? So this is just the opening scene here, if we discount the time the French have already spent hunting with the Sultan. So now in, in this kind of, you know, trying to give everybody by precedence, giving everybody equal chances... The English are now seated at the Sultan's right to balance having been on his left in the opening. Um, and Johnson, Crabbe, and Loder, you know, these old buggers are showing their worth. They're keeping the English table talking actively. Stephen is speaking Malay with his, his two neighbors, and one of whom is Wanda, the man who'd first received the Diane. And, and he's telling Stephen about seeing Stephen out in the woods running from the bees and, and said that, you know, he too had to run. And and unfortunately, when Wanda ran from the bees, he lost this huge babarusa that he was hunting. And Stephen says he hopes the pang of losing it was mitigated by the fact that swine's flesh is forbidden to Mohammedans. And Wanda smiles and says, well, so is wine. But in his words, you know, some days the merciful and compassionate is even more merciful and compassionate yeah. You know, and he's kind of like holding up his wine going, yep, yep, swine's flesh is, and so is the wine. But he does add that, you know, we don't eat the Barbarossa, that we just want to stop them from plowing up our fields, and we like to use their tusks. So I'm not going to eat their flesh. This is what we're going to you know, do with them. Right. And and this is a particular kind of wild boar, right, Mike? It is. It's it's like a boar. It's actually part of the swine family. It's It means pig deer in, in the local dialect in L.A. there. Uh, and they, you know, looking at a picture of these, they're almost, they almost look prehistoric. Um, you know, they've got these upward, incurving top canine tusks, which actually pierce through, they grow through their snout and through the jaw. They're kind of, you know, for those of you who want to put it in a, in a, in a 
easier, perhaps easier to think about, right? They, they're in the same family as warthogs. So for you Lion Kings fans out there, imagine kind of the, the oh, in nature uh, variety here. Pumbaa as opposed to Timon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we've got this nice sense here, I think, of, of a bit of decadence that we we at least think about swine's flesh, even if we don't eat it. We certainly think about and we connive at the drinking of alcohol. So we get this sense that this is not a pious setup. This is a court and a society where a, a certain amount of license is tolerated. And we go a bit deeper into the kind of license that's going on here. Stephen, as well as noticing that Muslims are drinking wine, he notices in particular that the Sultan's cupbearer, Abdul, a youth like a gazelle, is not hiding the red stream of wine that he's pouring into the cup there. And there seems to be this particular attention that's paid by the Sultan to Abdul. One Dar is meanwhile telling a tale about hunting a honey bear. And Stephen is looking around all the people in the room, comparing the English and the French missions. And he thinks that Duplessis should never have been sent to this kind of climate. Ray has fallen to pieces over the years, is turning greener with the shock of recognition. Ledwood looks like a formidable adversary, a man of quite unusual powers. He sees Ledwood give an unusual private look at the throne when he turns up to hold his wine glass to be refilled. And Stephen turns quickly and sees Abdul's answering smile. So we've got mm. a liquor being drunk. We've got a clearly a, a relationship between the sultan and abdul and we've got some kind of a connection as well between ledward and abdul ledward gives no more indications but abdul the cupbearer behind the sultan is not discreet and stephen's impression we learn grew to a moral certainty the possible consequences so filled his mind that he lost the thread of wandar's narrative until it ended up with, so, Tia Udin killed the bear, and the bear killed Tia Udin. Ha, 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 And Mike, with this setup for Ray and Ledward, and with the story about mutually assured destruction between the hunter and the bear, I wonder if there's any foreshadowing going on here. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got to wonder why in the world did this punchline get tucked right in here, you know, completely on top of Stevens making this observation. Yeah. Well, you know, this is very much on Stephen's mind. And and so he's walking outside after this whole thing is over with Jack and, and they're going to hail the ship. And Stephen asks Jack, did you reflect upon Ganymede at all? And Jack says, well, yeah, I was up all last night with him and, and would have been tonight if we're not for the Sultan's dinner. And I think Stephen's starting to think, what? <laughs> you know, and, and Jack goes on. He says, you know, he's my favorite, and I think he should still be peeping out tonight. And Stephen <laughs> says, are, are we talking about the same thing? And Jack says, well, come on, Stephen. Jupiter's in opposition. No one could have missed his splendor. And Stephen says, well, I, I assume then that Ganymede is somehow connected with Jupiter. And Jack says, yeah, it's the prettiest of his satellites. So it's one of the moons here. And Stephen says, well, I was actually talking about the Sultan's cupbearer. And Jack says, yeah, I saw him too. And I, I thought he was a girl, but I knew there'd be no women allowed at this feast. He says, why in the world are you calling him Ganymede? And Stephen says, Ganymede was Jupiter's cupbearer. And I believe their connection, their relations, their friendship would now be frowned upon. 
but I use the name loosely as it is so often used. I meant no reflection upon the Sultan. So end of chapter six here. Oh, Oh, Ian. It's great, isn't it? We've had Stephen digging deep into Eastern philosophy and the the humoral medicine and Van Buren. We've got him exploring how he can kind of suborn and understand the back alleys of connections and influence between the English and the French and the locals. We've got Ray and Ledward and now Ganymede, the cupbearer slash Abdul. And Stephen's very apparently kind of contrary behavior ashore, you know, sleeping with a girl and gambling. It's a very unsettling, a very odd, a very alien place that we've landed in, in terms of where we are in the world, how people are behaving, and just how solid the ground is that Jack and Stephen and Fox might be on. And and I'm thinking, hmm, not completely solid, despite the rain shower, uh, and despite the French envoy making a bit of a hash of his speech. Right, right. And I and I think it's, you know, it's funny as I kind of look back over the chapter and, and what led up to it, it really is kind of spinning itself out kind of like an intelligence novel, a spy novel, as well as an, you know, what's going to be, I think, a pretty, uh, as always, fascinating study in people here. You know, we had the whole thing about Fox earlier. Now we brought, you know, Abdul and Ledward and Ray and the Sultan. It's, uh, you know, I just start wondering where, where are we going next with this thing? Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. Actually, it, it reminds me a lot of John le Carré. Right. The kind of murkiness of the connections in the background. By the way, all the way through so far, Mike, since we met Fox, he's been backwards and forwards. Is he a is he a good guy? Is he resourceful? Is he kind? Is he skilled? Or is he weak? Is he self-regarding? Is he vain? Is he corruptible? And he's got this big moment here, the speech in front of the Sultan, but he still hasn't really put his stamp on the occasion here. We don't know really whether he's been successful or not. The the verdict on his character, I think, is still out. Right. And we've got, you know, we've got while Ledward has this kind of, you know, secretive glance with Abdul, we still have Fox as we had earlier at Black's. Anytime Ledward's name comes up, there's this cold hatred. And you think, so why would Fox be so intensely, you know, and I I keep thinking, have these guys had a relationship before? And so where does that leave Fox in the midst of all this stuff that we're seeing right now? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And is this something that Stephen Maturin can intervene in and manipulate and exploit, or is it something that he can't control and it's all going to come crashing around his ears? It's really fascinating. Right, that confession that he ducked out of at the end of last chapter. Right. Ah, well, Ian, I think there's only one thing for it. Shall we pull the book back down for Chapter 7, a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, I should have liked that of all things. about the erroneous nation. Ha, there's an outtake.
Um, <laughs> and about the erroneous notion. Start again, yeah. <laughs>